You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. Welcome to the show, everyone. You are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie, on an all-new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast. As always, very grateful, very excited to have you here joining us for an all-new episode and with such an amazing guest, nonetheless, as we always do, super blessed to just be able to host all of these individuals, but not only host them, amplify their message to all of you. And I've noticed the trend in the feedback we've been getting over the course of the last few months. The feedback's always amazing, but more so, in the last few months, we're going a lot deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think this is exactly where we need to be, all of us included, especially in such a transformational year. So I wanted to continue to provide value on the inner work. And that's exactly what we're doing here today with our guest, Michael Neal, internationally renowned author, speaker, and thought leader, challenging the cultural mythology that stress and struggle are a prerequisite to creativity and success. His best-selling books, podcasts, keynotes, trainings, and retreats treats have inspired and impacted millions of people on six continents around the world. Michael's mission is to unleash the human potential with intelligence, humor, and heart, and his unique brand of loving disruption has made him a beloved catalyst and creative spark plug to CEOs, leaders, creative artists, and anyone who wants to get more out of themselves and their lives while making more of a difference in this world. Now, I have to say that Michael's humor and his intelligence is exactly what drew me in. In fact, my coach, Carla Royal, who I've had on the show, if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly suggest doing so. She referred me to Michael to watch one of his TED Talks, and I was just drawn in by everything. So I told myself, I need to make sure that we're amplifying Michael's message here on Decoding Success, and we're bringing that into existence today with this episode right here. Listen, strap up, sit down, do whatever you got to do, because this episode is jam-packed with value. Again, super excited to be able to amplify this to you. And without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Michael Neal. Michael, first and foremost, let me welcome you to the show. Express my gratitude for you joining us today, especially during this whole global pandemic we find ourselves in. I truly appreciate you taking the time out of your day to make an impact here on Decoding Success. So again, man, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Of course. So listen, we kick this show off with a really interesting question. Some may say that we hop out of the, you know, the box a little too big here, but I'm curious to know, how do you personally define success? Ooh, that has changed so much over the years, but uh, I'll tell you what, I was being interviewed once for a magazine and uh, they were asking me for my five-year vision for my life. And I really hadn't thought about it for a while. So I kind of like thought, okay, I'm going to take this question seriously. What is my five-year vision? And I, I remember realizing that I was really happy and loved my life. And so five years into the future, I wanted to be really happy and love my life. Mm. So I'm going to go with that as a definition of success. If I'm really happy and love my life, I, 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 th- th- that's got to do it. Right. Like, I don't know what it's going to look like, but that's success for me. Yeah. And I love that. But I'm curious to learn how you got to that point. Right. Uh, You know, you mentioned success has changed for you personally uh, many times over the years, as it does for everyone. Right. And that's the interesting thing about this. And that's exactly why I love decoding it to understand how the individual sitting across from me gets to where they are at that point. Because hearing that, hearing you say it's all about happiness and just loving where you are 
are like, that's so beautiful. But I could tell you from personal experience, I mean, in my, I'm in my later twenties now, but in my early twenties, it was about how big of a check can I cash this week? You know, that, that was what I was pursuing. So I'm just curious to learn about your journey in regards to how you were defining success. Well, if it was a straight line, that would be easy. But of course, Mm. it never is. I think for me, I always had a sense of exactly how my life was going to turn out. And I was kind of right and kind of completely wrong. So like I knew it to the point where as a kid, I knew my 20s wouldn't matter. Okay. Like I just, I just knew that I kind of, I knew 30 to 35 is where I was going to really find my thing. 35 to 38, I was going to start climbing 38 to 42. I was going to really, you know, climb to the top 42 to 45. We're going to be like that final leap 45 to 50. I was going to live at the top 50 to 60. I was going to kind of slow it down and, and, and ride the wave. And then 60 on, I was going to mentor and give back. Like in my head from a very early age, for no reason I can tell you, that's how I thought my life. But I thought it was going to happen as an actor because that was my career. So I, and I did, I, I did a sitcom in, in, in the UK for the BBC. I did a lot of stuff. So I, I, I did well, but actually if I look at that age map, that's been the story of my career as a teacher and coach. Mm. And I actually have followed that. My first book came out at uh, 38. You know, my, my first bestseller was at 38. You, you know, it, so like the ages were remarkably prescient. It was just in a completely different field than I had expected it to be. Right. Now, do you find that timeline to be true just for you personally or for the people you work with as well? Because well, I would- that, that timeline was really specific to me. Like, okay. The, like I got a letter once. So I, I lived in London for about 15 years and I got a letter when I, I, I was in London, probably age 25. And it was, it was forwarded on from my mom's house. And it said, dear Michael, you're probably living in London. You're probably married, no kids yet. You're probably working at the BBC. And I'm like, and it was a letter from me in high school. So wow. like my freshman high school English teacher had given us this assignment, write a letter to you 10 years in the future. And, and, and he'd kept them and mailed them. And so somehow I knew aged 15, what I'd be doing at 25, even though I remember where I was age 19, when I told my parents, you know what, I think I want to go to London. And it was a brand new thought as far as I knew. That's incredible. But there's a whole thing about how much of the way our lives unfold is kind of laid out ahead of time that I, I don't claim to know that. And it's it, like, I don't. But boy, something in my life has been. That's so incredible. You know, I've heard that and I, I've always wanted to do it. And I can't say I have. I've told people I was going to do it. But writing that letter to yourself is monumental. Yeah. Oh, it, it, and you know, we took it over. So when we do retreats, we often will have them write a letter to themselves a year in the future and we'll, we'll keep them and mail them because it was just so cool. Yeah. And it is remarkable how it's not that people are always predicting the future accurately, but the things that they saw then have played out. Mm, I love that. 
I absolutely love it. Now you bring up high school. I'm curious who was Michael in high school, right? Like who were you hanging out with? What were you doing? What was the dream back then? You kind of alluded to that already, but I'm curious to learn and yeah, you know, start no, to I was the, you know, I was the theater geek. I was the valedictorian. I was um, wicked smart. Like they said, where I grew up, <laughs> uh, you know, my mom was a school teacher, right? I come from a family of freaking geniuses. So it's like, I'm the dumb one. Um, and, and so I was just that kid. I kind of expected to, you know, go out and become an actor and let down my parents cause they wanted me to go cure cancer or something. But you know, right. <laughs> that's who I was in high school. I, I'm, I'm, as I'm talking about myself, perhaps I was a bit of a jerk. I'm not sure. There's nothing wrong with that. Listen, I, I, I'm pretty much a jerk myself at times, but you yeah. know, all you could do is laugh it off. And I appreciate, you know, one thing I just wanted to point out before even moving forward is the fact that I appreciate your incorporation of humor into what you do. Mm-hmm. And I came across you, I discovered you after a coach of mine actually sent me one of your TED Talks. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this. And, you know, as serious as it was, I was also laughing. And I'm saying to myself, you know, life really, and especially business, it's not brain surgery every day. And I I just wanted to say thank you for the fact of, you know, number one, making me laugh. I I like anyone that can make me laugh. Not that I'm a hard ass or anything, but the fact that you were able to, you know, and the way that you're able to do it while being serious and conveying important messages is monumental. So I just wanted to make sure I'm saying thank you as well. Oh, you're, you're, you're welcome. But if, if it's okay, I'll, I'll speak to it a bit because it's not about trying to be funny. It is about the deeper you go, the lighter things get mm. in my experience. So people will, you know, will will talk about, well, and you actually said it there, you, you know, but this is such serious stuff you're talking about. And it, it's, I am serious, but without the heaviness. People yeah. think serious and heavy go together. Seriousness works much better if it's light. Mm. It doesn't make it any less serious. It just means you're not adding in this weight of the world, which just makes people uncreative, stressed out, and miserable, which, especially given my definition of success, is really a terrible way to go. Sure. What does it mean when you say the deeper you go, the lighter you get? I think that if you become a student of humans, which you don't strictly speaking have to, but it is a really interesting thing to be a student of. Mm. You start seeing that there are universals and idiosyncrasies. Like there are things that are just true for everyone. And then there are things that are true for some people. And I used to be fascinated by the differences. And in the last dozen years or so, I've become much more interested in this, the, the universals, right. in the, you know, what I, what I would call a capital T truth, things that are just true. Like it doesn't matter. You can take any human being and this will be true. And, and so the deeper you go into that exploration, the more you see that, that, that at the heart of being alive is aliveness. Mm. And aliveness is this vibrancy. It is this, this, this uplifting energy. It is light in both senses of the word, light as in not heavy, but light as in illuminating. Right. And, and so it, 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 you can kind of in some ways, and this is what it looks like to me, you can kind of judge where somebody is on their, on their own journey 
by how seriously they're taking themselves. And in that sense, what I mean by serious is like scrunchy up face, heavy, uh, like that, that just means you haven't looked very hard yet. Cause if you can't see you're an idiot and no offense to you, I'm an idiot. Like if you can't see your own idiocy or you think you're not supposed to be stupid sometimes, good luck to you. Right. Like we're all doing our best, but we're all kind of stupid sometimes. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you're you're no, right. I mean, I'm, that's what I mean. It's not really, I'm not trying to start an argument. It's like, it's just apparent. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I love that. I love that. So talk to me about what compelled you to become an author? What compelled you to become a, a coach? What compelled you to start putting your message out there like that? Well, it was interesting. I'd always loved writing. And I, in fact, got a job writing uh, a sketch comedy for the BBC in uh, 1994. And, and I told my wife, because I'd been up to that point, I'd, I actually was coaching, but in my mind, that was my hobby. And I was teaching and that was my hobby. But, right. but I, I, I told my wife, I'm going to become a writer. Like, I loved it. I, I don't think I'd ever been happier. And then I didn't write another word for six years. Like, I'm sure I sent letters and emails and stuff, but I didn't write anything after that show finished. And it baffled me. And then when I was getting ready to move to America, move back to America, one of my mentors said to me, the problem with you, and I love any sentence that begins with the words, the problem with you. The problem with you <laughs> is you have all of these cool ideas, but if somebody's not in the room with you, you have such a low boredom threshold that you never repeat them. What does that mean? Well, in other words, so like when I'm working with a client, if I'm in front of a group, things will come out of me. And anyone in any form of, of art gets this that I didn't think of. Like it came to me in the moment. It came through right. me in the moment. And because I love operating out of that space, what I used to call on the spot in the spotlight, where you're kind of running without a net. It's like this. Like, yeah, I know you've got a few notes, but, you know, neither of us know what's going to happen next. Sure. That's the fun of it. But the downside to that is something really cool gets said in this conversation. And if it wasn't being recorded, nobody else would ever hear it. Mm. And that's what he was saying. Cause at that time I wasn't podcasting. I wasn't blogging. There weren't sure. It wasn't that common a thing. And so I, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to see if I can write every day, one cool thing that comes to mind. And I started this thing. I called it the daily coaching tip. And I started sending it out to 12 people when I moved to America and I wrote every day, Sunday to Thursday. So they came out Monday to Friday. And this was before people were doing this. Like I didn't even know there was a name for it. I just was kind of doing it to see if I could. And I did it every day, every Sunday to Thursday for a year. So, so I basically just started writing. And then uh, a, a friend of mine who I used to work with came and asked me to help out on a book um, to kind of uh, effectively ghost. And that book went really well. And so then that friend's agent said, hey, would you consider ghosting for these other people? And so I started ghostwriting. And then at a, a, some of the books I worked on, so I did some ghosting, some developmental editing, where you're kind of contributing, but you're really more shaping their work than adding sure. your own. And one of, the, one of the agents that I'd been working through said, have you ever thought of writing your own book? And I was like, yes. <laughs> And that's how it started. It was just like it. So in other words, I loved writing, but the book thing kind of just came later in the, in the game. 
Yeah, that's so awesome. And you know, it's really almost so interesting how these things kind of just come to us over life in a way. And maybe it doesn't happen for everyone, but I mean, you mentioned you love writing, but the fact that, you know, you put yourself out there, you were doing writing work and then next thing you know, boom, you know, you're, you're getting offered to do your own book. Like that's freaking awesome. You know, it really was because <laughs> I had tried. That was the thing. I had tried to write my own book a couple of times beforehand <laughs> But it wasn't, the way I look at ideas is there's a ripeness to any idea. Mm. So sometimes you try and make something happen and it's just too soon. It's not, yeah. it's not ripe yet. It's not ready. Sometimes you do leave something too long and it's kind of like horrible. Right. And actually I did get a book contract before my actual first book where I wound up giving the money back because it was, I w they were asking me to write about something I used to do 10 years earlier. Mm. And I just didn't want to go back, I, I right. realized. But there's this period of time where it's ripe, where it's almost like falling off the tree and it's juicy. And so when I'm kind of sorting through different projects I could be involved with, I'm, I'm feeling for ripeness. I'm, I'm squeezing the cantaloupes. Like I'm, mm. I'm, I want to get a feel for, does this want to happen right now? Right. Now, it's not that I'm not involved. It's not that I'm not making choices. It's not, but, but this... You know, you can force an unripe project into the world, but it'll rarely go anywhere. And you can try and go with something that's just been around for too long and has kind of gone off and stinks. Yeah. But it's gone off and it stinks. So what's your advice? And hey, I mean, I'm probably asking this because I can really resonate with this, as can our listeners. We're, we're millennials. You know, we're millennials. I know from my experience... I definitely rush things to fruition, right? You know, kind of how you were saying, you know, that fruit is ripe on the tree. It's ready to come off. There's times where I see the fruit just starting to bud and I'll go and yank it off, you know? Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's tough because like we're, we're always like going for more, going for more, going for more as opposed to just being patient. But what I try and find the balance of is how do you go after what you want, but also know when the right time is to go after it. You know, that's where my struggle is. It, it, and, and it logically, the struggle makes sense. But if you taste the fruit and it tastes horrible, why are you still eating it? Mm. Like if you actually notice it doesn't work for you, you will stop. We're not idiots. I said earlier, we are idiots. But in that respect, like, you know, I use the analogy, you know, people talk about how hard it is to break habits and how much, and it's like absolute nonsense. Right. If, if, if you've driven to work the same way every day for 20 years and somebody shows you a shortcut that gets you there in a third of the time, you're going to take the shortcut immediately. Right. 30 day reconditioning program. So when somebody finds a better way to live, same thing. It's just, we try to force a habit to change when we don't really see why it would be better. So back to the tasting the fruit. If I actually notice, man, when I try and push this, it feels horrible. Mm. And I, it's not, it, nothing great comes of it. I'm going to stop doing it. Yeah. But if I don't notice, then I'm going to plow on. And I'm as, you know, I say this not as somebody who's never had that problem. I, I did this thing. So I used to suffer from depression and I, I, there was a book out in the eighties called potatoes, not Prozac. And the idea was that somehow there was something in a potato that was supposed to cure depression. So I follow this diet religiously because I'm desperate to not be miserable. And 
my wife, after six weeks, took me to the side and said, hey, are you okay? And I said, what do you mean? She said, I've never known you this, this depressed. And I was like, no, it can't be. I'm doing the potato thing. I didn't even notice my own experience. I was wow. so convinced the book must know the truth. And my experience was, yeah, whatever. I've learned the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. That actually, we really can trust our experience. Like if something feels off, it probably is. Right. Now, that doesn't mean you have to throw the whole thing out. It might be a very small adjustment. But you actually can trust that on-off feeling, that right-wrong feeling in you way more than people think you can. Yeah. So how do you know when it's your gut talking to you versus your mind, right? And I think that's another thing that's almost hard to distinguish because from what I'm interpreting it at, at least is that gut feel is something you should trust. But oftentimes, I mean, listen, I have thoughts going through my mind at a million and one miles per minute, you know, especially just being born and raised in a very fast paced city. My life is just super yeah. fast paced. There's always urgency. So it is almost hard to determine, you know, where that Uh, is coming from? Is it coming from my gut? Is it coming from my mind? Is it coming from my heart, et cetera? Well, for me, I, I, there's almost like a, 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 there's a couple of rules of thumb that I find very helpful. One is the, the, the more reasons I have for doing something, the less I probably want to do it. Mm. Right. Because when we actually want to do something, we don't need a reason. Right. You just do So it. if I've kind of got, okay, well, here are my 30 reasons why I should make this career choice. And here are the 15 reasons why I should. It's like, that just means I don't know. Mm. Like if I know it's a done deal. So part of how you know which it is, is do you know, or are you thinking about it? Right. Are you kind of still going back and now? Well, is it like, in other words, if I'm spending all my time wondering if it's my thinking, it's probably my thinking. Yeah. Whereas when I know, I just know. Now, it used to be that would happen to me once every couple of years. So I made a couple, I bought my first company when I was, I was late at night in an a, a underground subway station in London. And I just suddenly, listening to music, and suddenly I just went, oh, I need to buy out my business partner. Like, it was an absolute knowing. It came out of nowhere. It wasn't logical, but it was a done deal. Moving to America, same thing, moving back to America. I was, I was teaching a training and I just suddenly had this flash of, oh, I need to be in LA. Mm. Went home, said to my wife, hey, how do you feel about moving to LA? She said, why? I said, I have no idea. But I knew. <laughs> Nowadays, I actually recognize that's always available to us. Back then, I was so in my head that I only noticed when it like slammed me. Hit by the two by four. Yeah. Whereas now, because I'm more awake to it, I'm more tuned into what's going on inside me. I used to describe it like this. When you start out trying to distinguish between what I'll call wisdom, which is that inner knowing, that inner sense, and, and, uh, you know, mind noise, it's like trying to tell two blades of grass apart. Once you get a feel for it, it's like trying to tell the difference between a blade of grass and a lawnmower. They actually are nothing alike. But until you notice that, they really do seem like they're the same. What's the process of getting to notice that on that level? It really is as simple and as sometimes difficult as tuning in to yourself. Like just getting a little bit quiet. 
Yeah. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to go deep into meditation. You don't have to, you know, if for you, it happens when you go for a walk, go for more walks. If for you, it happens when you're in the shower, hang out in the shower. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter how you get there. But when we take ourselves off our mind for a minute, it, bing, yeah. it, 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 it there it is. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really interesting, you know, and I, I think we could even relate this to your, I, I believe it was your first TED talk. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, thoughts are, are wild sometimes. Like there, there are, there are times where I'm like, did I just really think that, mm-hmm. you know, and it is, it's not hard for me personally, at least to, to calm the mind. In fact, I believe I've been getting better at it and especially doing some really deep work on myself right now. But, you know, for those that are out there, like wh- what were you doing to, to calm your mind and to kind of remove yourself from the thought patterns? Well, when, before I had an understanding of the mind, I was doing drugs. I was doing alcohol. I was doing meditation. I was doing anything because I, all I knew was it was crazy in here. Yeah. Like I used to say that I would never want to meet the inside of my head in a dark alley. But when I started to see that thought is just, um, a neutral capacity. It, it's just this creative force in us. And when we use it to create something deliberately, it's kind of beautiful what comes. But when we just leave it to its own devices, it's just going to create shit. It's going to create yeah. and create and create. And it's like, oh, aliens are coming down. And oh, she must be in love with me. And oh, like, I mean, it's just, it's a nonstop creative force. And when you see that, you realize you don't actually have to listen to it all the time. And you certainly don't have to go with it. I, I, so, okay. I, I've been living in LA a while now. When we first moved here, my wife and I, we went out to, to dinner one night. We were in this kind of um, bar restaurant on the pier. And there were these two actress slash models, uh, you know, at the next table. And they're, we're eavesdropping because they were more interesting than we were. And, 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 you know, one of them is talking about her, you know, how her boyfriend turned out to be a jerk and he, you know, and he was cheating on her and, and, and she, she, she winds up this litany with, you know, why do I keep meeting the wrong guys? And her friend, who's obviously heard the story a thousand times before, just looks at her and says, the problem isn't you're meeting the wrong guys. The problem is you keep giving them your number. Right. And I always kind of thought, yeah, the problem isn't that we think crazy stuff. The problem is we take the crazy thoughts and kind of go, hey, call me. Like we engage with them as if they're not crazy. Right. That's so powerful. That's so powerful. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I I love it. Like that was perfect. That was perfect. I'm curious. Yeah. That's cool. But like, that's the nature of like, that's why I love the work that I do. Like I was talking to a new client this week and he runs multiple companies over in Europe and he's, he's an incredible entrepreneur. He's, he's like early thirties and has done more in his life than I have. Like, you know, so I can also use him to make myself feel inadequate, but I'm, I'm coaching him and, and we're, we're talking to, he, he said to me, you know, I, I tried to explain you to my girlfriend uh, today. And I was like, okay. And, and, and he said, yeah, I, he, he said, I said that, that working with you for an hour is like 10 hours with a normal coach. 
because you don't really do processes. You just kind of keep blowing my mind and then new ideas come in. And it's, it's the nature of the conversation. I mean, I'd love to take credit for it and say, yes, I'm amazing. But it's actually when you look to see what is really already happening, it becomes frighteningly obvious. Like, you know, people want their insights to be uh, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. Oh, my God. Right. When, when, when they're almost always Homer Simpson, you know, don't. <laughs> we, actually, we actually jokingly started calling what I do flathead coaching because people keep hitting themselves in the forehead with their palm because it's like once you see it, it is. It's game changing. Yeah. But until you see it, you don't see it. I love that. I absolutely love it. I, I want you to have fun on the show, Michael. So I'm going to ask you a question. Hopefully you've <laughs> yes, never been asked. I'm having a hell of a time so far. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to learn what is a question you wished more people would ask you and how would you answer it? Oh boy. Um, I'm, I'm, I just, so you know, I am running through a, about 30 smart ass answers that I'm just filtering out to try and get to a real one. Um, <laughs> they're about the different women I've had sex with that I haven't really, but I, you know, they'd be great <laughs> questions to be asked. You know, what was to me more like back in the day? Um, so real question. I think people are actually like people, people doing what you do often are, do ask good questions, especially when they ask the questions they want the answers to. So it's, it's not that there's a question that everybody misses, but I think the question that if people were more willing to ask, they would, they would get better answers. It, it, it would be upstream. It would just be what's behind that, like what's behind the curtain of success as opposed to what is success. Right. Like what, what's up. So there's an old teaching story that I've always loved. And it's a, a man lives in a village by a river and he goes down to the river one day and he sees somebody drowning and he dives in and manages to pull them out. And the, they're catching their breath on the side of the river and they look out and they see two more people drowning in the river and the two of them go and they dive back in and they pull out. And eventually they start to see there's so many people drowning in the river and, and they can't keep up, but they do their best. Like, so every day they go down to the river and save as many as they can, mm. but they, they never can get to everyone. And one day the, the original guy, the, the, the founder of the saving people from the river movement disappears. And all the people that he'd rescued who now were doing that work were, you know, some of them were like, oh, well, he finally burned out. It was inevitable. You know, it finally got to him. Some of them were quite angry at him for having left. Others were like, no, no, no. I mean, he, hell, he saved us, you know. And, and they go down to the river every day. And then one day, about a month later, they go down to the river and there's not one person drowning in the river. And they look at each other like it is a miracle. Today is a day we will remember. We'll create a holiday, you know, to, to mark the day, this gift we were given of one day without people drowning. But then the next day there's nobody drowning and the next day there's nobody drowning. And then they get a couple days later, they see somebody in the river splashing about and they dive in and the person goes, I, I'm not drowning. I'm waving. Like the, and suddenly they're seeing the people now in the river are having fun. They're not, drowning. And a little bit after that, because everyone now doesn't go down to the river anymore because you don't need to, the, the original guy comes back 
he's reappears in the village and some people are like oh my god great news you know everything's changed down by the river and other people are how could you have left us and he looks at them and he goes i i didn't abandon you i just figured if all those people were drowning in the river a they must be falling in somewhere and two they clearly don't know how to swim so i thought if i went upstream i could maybe find where they're falling in and make that safer and teach them how to swim. Wow. And so that's, it's not like a specific question, but I think when you're exploring something like success, when you're exploring something like happiness, when you're exploring anything really, the further upstream you look, the more powerful anything you see will be because it impacts everything downstream. Mm -hmm. So we tend to get caught up in the forms success takes, what it looks like in your life, what it looks like in my life. We might go slightly upstream and go, you know, where did you get the idea for this? And, and, and uh, you know, how did you develop your strategy for that? But before that, there's a question of like, where do ideas come from? Where, where does original thought come from? What's the actual source of innovation? Right. And when you start asking questions like that, it, it's a game changer, even on an individual level. So I was working with a screenwriter, pretty successful. He'd done movies with Spielberg and, and a lot of the big, the big directors and actors. And he was, he was, he had, um, a writer's block essentially he was and and i'm sitting in his he had this amazing place with a library and it's like you know it was cool you know i'm, I'm still a bit of a hollywood whore i think it's neat and, <laughs> and 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 i got him off the conversation about his writer's block because it was pretty clear to me that was downstream that was the effect of something right and so i just said look we don't have to talk about that let's talk about the nature of creativity because that was about as far upstream as I could take that conversation. And we did. We had a really interesting conversation because, of course, a lot of his life was about creativity. So he had a lot of thoughts about it once I started asking. And in the middle of our conversation, he just stopped and he said, can you give me 20 minutes? And I was like, yeah. And he, he, he goes up on his library, climbs one of those My Fair Lady ladders, if you ever saw that movie, right? Grabs down a book from high up picks up his phone, calls his agent um, and says, hey, can you look into getting the rights to this book? And I'm just sitting there watching it, you know, drinking tea because it's like he's on a roll. And he, he, he goes, yeah, no, no, I can hold. And he, within the 20 minutes, they bought the rights. Like, I don't know how they freaking do stuff like that, but it's like they, they were like, yep, you can do this. And that movie was in development within the week. Wow. I mean, the script was in development, the movie. Right, took right. Longer. Now, that to me is the power of going upstream. If we dealt with his writer's block, we would have gotten lost in his psychology. We would have gone into his, I don't know where we would have gone, but it would have been messy. Now, we might have gotten through it. You know, we might have been able to hack our way through the jungle of psychology. But it, how much easier to just go upstream before the jungle has taken root? Right. That's so awesome. Now, when I first heard you say upstream, immediately I started thinking about the future, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to kind of put a word to it that isn't the future because upstream is merely just from, from what I'm interpreting, maybe, you know, I'm looking at it maybe from like a manufacturing standpoint. It's like, it's not point A. Point A was where everyone was drowning, but maybe it was, or, I'm sorry, uh, maybe point C is where everyone saw everyone drowning, but point A was where it started, right? Yeah. So 
um, you know, well, going from C to A is backwards, but we'll call that upstream. How, yeah. how can I relate that, I guess, to looking too far into the future, right? Uh, or do you get well, what I'm so saying? I, I think so. I think the, 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 the confusing bit to me, <laughs> no, I don't. No, the confusing thing to me about what you're saying is upstream has to be before, it does. Correct. That's right. why I'm, so, I'm lost with the future. Right. So part, the future but, is a weird place to look upstream because the future is where the river is going to go, where the river right. is going to take us. So what we're looking for in a way is what's the source of the river? Mm. Where does the river come from? I mean, we're in a metaphor here, but, but if I take it out of the river metaphor, in any given moment, we can look to the effects or we can try and look upstream to the cause. Mm -hmm. We can look at what's in the river or we can look to where it came from. So even if, imagine this, so you've got a river and it's polluted. You go partway upstream and you see there's a factory and it's dumping pollutants into the river. And you think, ah, well, there's the problem. But if you go upstream of the factory, the water's perfect. And it will actually wash away the pollution, whether the factory start, stops or not. So let's take that as our metaphor. Our mind just dumps toxic thinking into the river on a regular basis. Right. Like unless you got really lucky, your mind is full of shit. Like it's just crappy thinking after crappy thing after crappy thinking. Not, not that there's not some good stuff in there. And most people think they've got to do something about that, but that is a lifelong pursuit. Like I, I've been around long enough to have met a lot of the sort of um, teachers and gurus of the positive thinking moment movement. And they're generally speaking, incredibly well-intended and struggle just as much with their thinking as I do or, or as anyone does. And so to me that, that would indicate perhaps that's not the place to look for the answer. Right. Now, if you go upstream before positive or negative thinking, you see that there is a place in us of pure possibility before creation, before the ideas come, before thought. Well, that's a pretty cool place to hang out if you want to be more creative. Yeah. That's an amazing place to hang out. That, that's right. a place I, I, yeah. And it's not dependent on your psychology. Your psychology is downstream of that. Your psychology got created already. Like it's too late for your psychology in some ways. Like it right. can get better, but it's, it, 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 there's not a lot of leverage in there. But you go before your psychology. Now you've got some real power. Now you've got some real potential. Yeah. That's awesome stuff, man. Listen, Michael, I could talk to you all day, by the way. So I'm trying to be mindful of the time here. I want to, <laughs> I want to make it's sure. Show. I mean, we can go as long or as short as you'd like. Well, that's the thing. I mean, listen, you could be here till tomorrow, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. You know, I'm trying to make sure I'm not doing that. I don't know. You. What's the record for the longest podcast? Let's see how we do. I mean, Joe Rogan usually goes like three hours. Right? You hit the nail on the head. Joe Rogan goes a long time. He goes a long time. But um, what do you have going on now that we can amplify to people? Like, do you have a new book in the world? or do, like what, what can we put out there I want to make sure people are you know I'm not I'm not kicking you out by any means but I no, want to no, make sure no, I'm squeezing no, this in you. no I appreciate it well we've got a few things coming up so we um it's been really interesting uh, with the pandemic shifting to um you know all online and live stream because right. we already did a lot of that so it, ha it actually wasn't as big a deal for us like the biggest deal was we had all these trainings booked in London back in April and so what uh what 
I did is I wound up moving to London in my office. So I changed all the clocks. You know, I'd, I'd wake up at 11 at night here, which was like seven in the morning there, um, take the dogs for their morning walk. Uh, you know, I'd be drinking by 10 in the morning because that was like six at night. So it was the end of the day. <laughs> and taught these online seminars in London time from LA. And once we did that and that worked, I thought, okay, we can, we can actually do everything that I do. We just have to do it a little bit differently. So we've got coming up in the fall, a, a program called Do More Cool Stuff, which okay. is, it's a program. It's the first time I've ever done this one, but it's trying to address a gap. Most people think the choices are be Gary V. Mm. Like, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You know, I can rest when I'm dead kind of, kind of stuff or be like old Zen and hope things magically happen. Now, I've been working with successful people for over 30 years. And I got to tell you, the, the, the ones whose success both fits my definition, like they really do enjoy their lives, and traditional definitions. In other words, you would look at them and go, cool. Wow. Right. They don't do either. They're, they don't, they're not the Gary V's on the whole. I'm not saying any, I don't know Gary V. He might be super happy and su- like, I'm, but that's not the norm in my experience. And nor are they like magically drifting through the fairy tales with the unicorns pooping money on them. Like it, it, <laughs> it's like they are pretty present. They operate not in completely daytight compartments, but they're, they're pretty much dealing with what's on their plate, not trying too hard to deal with what's going to be on their plate tomorrow or going back over what was on their plate yesterday. So they're pretty chill in that sense, but they're in the game. They're actively doing. Right. And it is amazing that the, if, if, if you are, are very active and engaged but without all the stress and mind noise, you can stay very active and engaged. It doesn't exhaust you. You don't need to, okay, yeah, but I've got this to help me cope with that. And I've got this to help me cope with that. And I've got these hacks to help me cope with the thing. It's like, why not just do stuff? And, and, and no, there's nothing tiring about doing stuff. Like when we get to the end of the day and we're exhausted, nine times out of 10, it's because we've been thinking too much, not because yeah. we've been too much. So it's really playing in that sweet spot where you're pretty chill and you're very active. And that's what I've seen is the commonality in the people who have, you know, we could call it inner and outer success. Right. That was going to be a question that I asked next was, what do you find are the characteristics that uh, make up the successful people you work with, including yourself and beyond? You know, like what, what are like the top three? It sounds like one of them is essentially being in flow. That's kind of how I'm taking what you were just mentioning. Is there anything else? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it, it, there's definitely an element of operating from flow. I think there is an, a, a, an intolerance for not operating in flow might be a better way of saying it. Okay. Meaning like, that... Well, most of us are, are, we love those rare moments of flow, but in the meantime, we'll show up and put in the hours and plod through anyways. Right. The, the people I've seen who really seem to thrive aren't willing to have to, when it starts feeling like hard work, they're, they're like, okay, I'm off. Mm. There's something off here because it should feel like flow most of the time. So we, we have a, in um, creating the impossible, I, I put forward an alternate uh, definition of productivity. So most people think of productivity as, um, you know, the amount one produces. 
And so there's a a one-to-one ratio between the work that I put in and what gets produced. So if I want to produce more, I need to work more. And if it's to work more, I need to manage my time better. I need to manage my workflow. I need to... You can pretty much find uh, half of the business books in the business section of a bookshop saying, here's how you manage your time better, manage yourself better, so you can do more, so you can produce more. Right. My definition of productivity, again, that comes from spending time with these these, um, happy high achievers, is how much juice are you getting to the squeeze? Mm. So what if I can have a, I get five results for every effort instead of one-to-one. And people kind of go, well, that's crazy, but no, you know, it works the other way, right? We've all had diminishing returns where we, it's taken us five times too long to get the result, but it works the other way too. That's what we love about flow. Flow, we're almost, it feels like we're barely doing anything in so much is happening. And if you start to Again, just look at what is the nature of flow. You start to see, oh, flow is portable. Flow is not something that can only happen if all of these preconditions are met. It's a way of using the mind. It's a way of being with, with, with ourselves. And so, again, you start to trust, oh, hey, I know when it's off. I know when I'm pushing too hard. And so you back off. And then you also start to get a feel for, I know when I'm just not starting because I'm not starting. Yeah. Like one of the, and this is, you know, coaching 101, but one of the things I used to do with clients all the time is when they would come and they go, I just can't get started on this. I just can't get going on this. I just say, oh, okay. Well, look, um, uh, call me back when you have. And I hang up. Nobody takes more than half an hour to call me back. Really? Yeah. Because a lot of times the reason you haven't started is because you haven't started. I'm not saying they finished the project in half an hour. I'm just saying they got the point. Right, right. Right? You don't need to understand it. If it, it, it here's, a, here's an analogy that I love. If a stick gets stuck in a river, it doesn't need therapy. It needs a nudge back into the flow of the river. Yeah. When we get stuck on a project, we don't need to analyze it. We, we just need something to kind of bump us back into the flow. That's the importance of coaching. That's the importance of mentorship right there. Yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's the importance of seeing that the value in coaching and mentorship isn't the data that your mentor has. I mean, there might be some there, depending if they're in a similar field than you, but it's their ability to actually have some perspective mm-hmm. and to kind of go, yeah, this happens. And yeah, no, this isn't fundamental. You just need a tweak. Or sometimes, like with some of the people I work with, like, you know, who think they just need a tweak, it's like, oh no, you're fundamentally in the wrong game. And that just becomes apparent because you're seeing it from outside. Whereas when you're in it, it all looks real and it all looks important and it all looks like the most important thing in the world. That's powerful stuff. I love this. So we bring up mentorship. I'm curious, uh, you know, on the topic of advice here, what do you feel? And this is kind of a cliche question, but like, what do you feel like is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm. That's a, yeah, it might be a cliche question, but I haven't answered it for a while. So let's see. Uh, I, this wasn't exactly advice, but it did change my life. So I was, I was, I was listening to a tape of a, a Scottish enlightened welder 
named Sid Banks. And actually, he's like significant in my life because I then went and started reading his stuff and it made a big difference to how I do what I do. But somebody had said, oh, you got to listen to this guy. And I was like, fine. And I'm, you know, I'm two beers in. I've got it on. I'm waiting. I promised them I'd watch it, but there's a ball game on and I want to finish it so I can put the ball game on. And so I'm like half, half listening. And he says, every human being is sitting in the middle of mental health. They just don't know it. And for some reason, I heard that so deep. The beer started coming out of my nose. I was laughing so hard because my entire life from about the age of 13 to I think I was 41 had been an epic battle against depression and mental unwellness that I was winning, but that I had expected I would be fighting till the day I died. And I realized in that second, hearing him say that, that it was true, that actually there was nothing wrong with me. I just, I just really, 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 really thought there was. And I'd thought it for so long, I didn't question it. Yeah. <laughs> this is a little off topic, but out of total curiosity, you brought up beer, drinking twice. What's the beer of choice? Do you know what? I, I am... My son hates me. My, my son was actually a, a, um, a, a beer sommelier. Okay. So like he is continually trying to introduce me to good things. And I, I'm kind of keto. So I'll drink like a, 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 a you know, a Michelob Ultra. I knew my that son's was just Head in his hands, head in his hands. Like, dad, no, you can't. But yeah. So actually, you know what I'm into? White Claw. It's great. Really? You're a white claw. I'm a white claw guy. The kids, the kids, you know, the kids today, they brought it into the house, but, but actually I quite like it. So that's awesome. All right, cool, cool. Uh, you know, I asked you what the best piece of advice was. I'm curious to see if there's anything different when I ask you, what was a piece of advice you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but it proved to be true over time. Yeah, I actually have one. And it's funny because this again, isn't quite advice. So there's, um, there was a, 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 a very famous is the wrong word because you wouldn't know them by name, but a very, um, the psychic to the Royal family in the UK. Okay. Um, and she had heard about me and she wanted, uh, me to coach her. And so she said, would you do a swap? I'll do a reading for you. If you do a coaching session for me, and I thought, cool. Like, I don't really know what I think about that stuff, but Oh, it's good enough for the, the royal family. I'll, I'll give it a try. And, and she said to me, um, she's re- doing tarot cards. And she said, oh, oh, you're not doing what you're going to be doing. Because at the time, I was, I was one of the lead trainers in the neurolinguistic programming community. So I, I would teach these five, 600 people seminars with Dr. Richard Bandler, Dr. Paul McKenna, you know, in London. You know, we were, we were at the forefront of a field. And she said, oh, you're not going to be doing that soon. You know, you're going to be, you're going to get involved in a different field and it's going to be kind of controversial and, and, and you're going to become a, a, a leader in that. And I, and I dismissed everything she said after that, because I thought if there's two things I know about me, one is I love what I'm doing, so I'm not about to change. And two, I hate controversy. So the idea that I would be involved, like, and, and I humored her for the rest of our session. And it was probably three years later when my uh, book, The Inside Out Revolution, came out. And it, it started getting a lot of very, very positive feedback and some very, very negative feedback. 
And I suddenly went, holy crap. I am in a completely different field. It is very controversial. I am at the forefront of it. I wish I knew what else she'd said in that session that I don't remember. Because <laughs> I had blocked her out because I just thought, well, that's never going to happen. Right. So I don't know if that quite qualifies as the advice, advice I didn't want to hear. But it was, a, it was a glimpse of a future that at the time sounded awful to me, but actually has been wonderful. Nothing so, like I would have made up. Right. Uh, I'm curious... You know, it, it almost seems like you were rejecting a sign in a sense, right? I mean, it was very direct and, and, and plus maybe you didn't believe it at that time. But when it comes down to, you know, repeatedly seeing signs and, and we reject them, what's your take on that? You know, um, obviously it comes to everyone differently, but I'm curious what you think about that. Life is pretty patient is what I think about that. I, I think of it as like the GPS in your car. If you don't take, if it says right turn ahead and you don't, it, it doesn't give you crap. Yeah. It doesn't say, what the hell are you doing? What's wrong with you? Why are you self-sabotaging? It just tells you the next place to turn to get to the same place. And if you ignore that one, it will keep recalculating the route forever until you give it a different destination. So while I think it's life is definitely gentler the earlier you listen, you're not going to stop getting hit in the head until you're awake. (laughs) It's it's sometimes nicer. There's another old teaching story about two two guys in college and and, uh, one of them wakes up to his roommate dumping a bucket of ice on his head. He's like, wow, what are you doing, man? And he goes, you told me to wake you. And he goes, yeah, not like that. And his roommate goes, look, I tried knocking. I tried calling your name. I set an alarm. You know, it didn't work. I think life's like that. Like, I think if we're listening, we'll probably hear the first alarm. But we don't have to worry about it because if we sleep through the alarms, it'll get us. It just might get us in a way we don't like. You know, I really appreciate the way you make these analogies realistic. You know, and this is the third, fourth time you've already done this in the matter of 53 minutes, 54 minutes since we've been, we've been talking, you know, I I appreciate that because it helps people resonate with it. Number one, on a much deeper level, because it's simplified, right? It's, it's simplified. So I appreciate that about you, but Michael, I do want to ask you one last question here. If you could only give one piece of advice now, the rest of your life, meaning you could only write one more book on this, hop on another podcast, only say this one thing, hop on stage, et cetera. It's a pretty tough question, but I'm curious, like what would that one piece of advice be? You know, again, it doesn't quite qualify. If, okay, I'll do two versions. If it was in the form of advice, it would be settle down. Okay. Like I would say for 95% of people that I meet, if they could just settle down a bit, they do settle much. down, meaning what settle down, meaning get married, settle down, meaning no, calm no, no, down. No. Oh, sorry. Of course. No, no, no. I mean like settle down in your head. Okay. Like chill, mm. you know, uh, you know, just, just settle down. It'll be okay. Because when people settle down, they see right. their minds settle down they see more clearly. And when you see more clearly, doing better is easy, right? It's just a hell of a lot easier to do things without a blindfold on than with one. And when we're, when we're all up in our heads going crazy, it's like this big blindfold. We can't see beyond our own thinking. And when, when we settle down, it's like the blindfold slipping down 
and uh, suddenly we can see. So that would be the advice piece. And then the, the, the other thing that had come to mind that I just think is incredibly helpful to know is you are so much more than you're thinking. And if you start to see that, then your thinking goes back to being a useful tool instead of your own tormentor. Yeah, that's powerful, man. This is this episode has been powerful. I just want to point that out. Not not only for me, but you know, for everyone, we're amplifying this too. So I just want to say and express my gratitude again. Thank you for that. I'm gonna make sure websites where people can get the books, socials, all that good stuff is in the show awesome. notes of this episode. Uh, Michael, thank you, man. I appreciate this. Oh, really nice to meet you. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, from our friend Michael Neal himself. I have to ask you, if you found this to be of value, make sure you are sharing it with the people in your circle. Like I said earlier in this episode, we are in unprecedented times. Although it may not seem like it with things opening up from state to state, we really still are in this and we need the transformation. We need to take a hold of this year and not let this year control us. So make sure that you're sharing these positive vibes, this positive energy, even if you're just throwing it up on your Instagram story or if you're sending it in a group chat whatever the case is and make sure you're reaching out to me and letting me know you're doing this so that I'm able to express my gratitude to you directly and not just on an amplified level like this right here tag us in the Instagram stories do whatever I want to shout you out I want to show you love just like you always do for us so again thank you for that in advance make sure you're leaving that rating and review if you have not done so yet as well that helps us bring on more amazing individuals just like Michael and most importantly make sure you're connecting with him you can find all of his contact information from his website to his socials in the show notes of this episode make sure you're tuned in for the next one make sure you're hitting that subscribe button so you're getting notified when that next one's dropping until next time everyone be blessed peace